Welcome to another edition of SEC Football and Beyond. It is Friday, November the 6th, so uh, happy birthday to my little brother, Tim, who's, I guess he turns 45 today. Congrats. Happy birthday, uh, Tim. Yep, November the 6th. So uh, here we go with another week in the SEC. Chris Landry's with me. You can follow Chris at LandryFootball.com, LandryFootball at LandryFootball.com. Follow me at Neil McCready, at least for now. My days on Twitter are coming to an end here rapidly, I suspect. But for now, I'm at Neil McCready on Twitter. Uh, big week in the SEC. First of all, Chris, I want to get your thoughts on the uh, the Pac-12 trying to get started. Cal canceling their game with Washington, I, I believe, based, mm -hmm. off, based off one likely false positive. Does the Pac-12 really even want to do this, or, or are we going through motions here from talking to people? Well, I, you know, listen, they're going to be hyper, hyper sensitive. I mean, the very reason why they're starting so late is the very reason why that they're likely more apt to cancel. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, I'm not quite sure where to go with it. I mean, like I've always been a little bit uncomfortable knowing what's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do with this. But yeah, I would say that it's pretty clear that they're going to be ultra, ultra, ultra conservative. And particularly as I kind of understand it, I was even told last night that the fact that it's more, you know, in a liberal situation in Berkeley, that's, it's maybe, you know, uh, even in a PAC 12 sense, you know, probably anywhere else in the Pac-12, they should probably play the game. That this is, you know, you know. So look, I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's a very heightened political time. I know the the reality is this. This is the, how people view this medically in different areas. Again, above my pay grade, yeah. uh, and certainly politically, I'm not not a very political person and don't think in those lines. But there is no question that other people do, and I think this conference does. And I think certainly, if you were going to stack up, at least in my experience and scouting and knowing those those programs, there is no more liberal place uh, in well, maybe in the country, but well, there's there's a few maybe more in the country, but but certainly in the Pac-12, it's it's Berkeley. I mean, it is it's absolutely going to be. So I'm I'm disappointed, and what it's done, it's basically made the Pac-12. It's like having. Uh, uh, like a JV schedule. I mean, for those of you that are young enough, you won't remember this, but there used to be JV football when freshmen couldn't play football in college, and they'd be like a four or five game schedule. That's that's what the Pac-12 has, you know. I mean, it's an exhibition type, and they'll play some football, and everything they get is just bonus. But it really is not going to amount to a whole lot, other than you know, for me being able to watch some football, watching some prospects, and kind of think about what what might be for next year for those teams? Cause there's, there's really not going to be much there. Yeah, I agree. Uh, just kind of, it's kind of interesting as they get to it. Cause they, there's no room for them to cancel games. And when they, no, can, when they cancel games, it, it, the, the message that it sends to me, if I'm, if, if I'm a fan watching it, the message that it sends to me is we don't really want to do this. And you know what though, Neil, um, I'm not going to say they're not any, but like when we had, the holdout from the big 10 when, when, you know, there was a lot of friends that were up and on. I mean, there's a lot of uh, it, certainly the big 10 fan base is not quite to the level of sec, you know, fervor and, but it's pretty big and they were up in arms. You don't really have that in the pac 12. It's like play. Don't play. There, there are probably more people around there that, think it's irresponsible to be playing that that's that's what probably most of the people think so it is not going to be uh i mean it's a story among the people that cover the sport and there's some really good people i don't know if you know john wilner uh but john's a john's a very very san jose mercury news he calls quite a bit you know with yeah with, he is just really really good and i think people like that and other people that follow and have a passion for pac-12 football and pac-12 sports I think it bothers them, but for the most part, it doesn't. It, it it does not create a real interest level. There's more interest in you know when the Lakers are going to start up, and you know, and when you know uh, it, certainly the 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 NFL. 
it's just not the same. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate. And it's part of the reason why they've fallen behind and someone who loves football period. I, I always try to look and see is how that can be better, but, but it has to start at home and, then there's just not quite the passion for it. And I feel bad for the people that are passionate and that are going to miss out, but Hey, uh, we got to get through this and hopefully, uh, I just keep hoping that we can get through this season, Neil. And then I'm just hoping and praying next year we're, we're often in a better place. I don't know. We'll see. Well, no, I am too. Uh, and, and not, not even about football necessarily, but just in general, but, yeah, I, yeah, of course. but I can, I can tell you as it pertains to football and you saw the NFL kind of come out with, Hey, we're losing money hand over fist. And you yes. saw ESPN firing 10% of their employees. And here's the reality. I've told some people this, you know, this is not political. This is financial. Yeah. Is if by next season, we can't get back to normal, not close to normal, normal where you can fill up stadiums people who want to go can go people who don't want to go don't go if we can't get back to that place we're in in trouble yeah real real cuts coming real changes coming this is this is not this what you see on the television now with these uh socially distanced stadiums empty nfl stadiums this is not this is not uh doable I'll be honest. I'm, I was surprised earlier this week, Chris, when the NBA announced that they're starting on December 22nd. I think the players have voted to tentatively ratify that agreement. I'm surprised because I know some people in some NBA front offices who say, hey, if we can't put people in seats. What's is, the point? This is I mean, what, the only reason why they you tell me you follow the NBA. Clips, the only reason why you have 82 games is to try to charge for 80. I mean. Really, that, that, yeah. that, 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 that yeah. should be, you know, and, and I know, I mean, you know, for me, I'm selfish. It's, but I it would think, you know, 50 games are fine and let's start it. Let's make it a, what I call a second semester sport thinking college. It's I've always felt like let's have college basketball in the NBA. Let's start that in January. You know what I mean? But I mean, that's just me selfishly. And I don't, I don't necessarily expect everybody to agree with that. But the only reason why you have 82 games is so you got more bites at the apple to sell. I get that. It's business-wise. But look, from the NFL, um, look, the NFL, as tough as it is, they can deal with certain things financially. To a Man, point. It, it, the, the, the thing I worry about is, you know, college, because the NFL doesn't have 18 sports, you know, yeah. Our 18 entities, they've got to support. And we got some real problems that are going on um, in college that are worse and more dire. Uh, but, yeah, no, there's there are things that obviously the NFL can do, and their players are not going to be happy, Players Association, but there's going to be some um, some – a day of reckoning of, okay, well, our expenditures and how we do things, we're going to have to look at this for a while until we get back. But in college, man, the only answer is we're going to have to start, you know, lopping off the thing. So yeah, no, it's, it's an issue and it's a sign. And I, you know, I've said all along as much as I'm just enjoying the, I mean, watching football in some ways, I'm just kind of hoping to get through it. And if we can get to the finish line and hoping that we can regroup and figure this out, um, but we'll, we'll see. All right, let's talk some uh, SEC football. We'll get to the, the first game is the one that I think most people probably are, are most focused on on uh, Saturday. Florida and Georgia, 3.30 on CBS, 3.30 Eastern, 2.30 Central. They're in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. I don't know what the attendance regulations are. Florida's been a little more wide open than most states, but I don't know if it's 25% or, or what it is in the stadium, but there will be fans in the stands. The uh, the Gators and the Bulldogs, I can tell you just kind of reading the stuff out of Gainesville, it's very clear Florida views this as a real opportunity to take a jump up in the SEC. They view Georgia yeah. as a little bit of a, pardon the pun, wounded dog right now, and this is an opportunity to, to, to jump them. Yeah, I think big picture. Let's start there because you just hit on something. And I, I think it's really point, uh, a poignant. So from Florida's standpoint, you're right. They feel like, because that's the whole narrative, right? Oh, we're, we're coming after you. Well, let's remind folks, George just kind of owned this recently. I, look, folks, you can go back, you know, 15, 20 years. No, but Georgia has really kind of handled, uh, Georgia's handled Florida. So 
they look at it as you're right. They can they can take that step, beat Georgia. We're coming, we're coming. We're now we we got you now. Um, but you know, is is important as that is. There's always the narrative. Okay, Florida's getting better. It's down defensively. They're not as talented as Florida. I did the breakdown, and and I don't. This is not how you determine games. But I looked at the personnel edge, and I've got the breakdowns on LandryFootball.com. Overall, Georgia has a personnel edge in every position except quarterback and and wide receiver tight end. Uh, that that doesn't. That just that's just a note, a footnote. There's a belief, at least by the constituencies in Florida that look Georgia is more talented and we're, we're gaining on them. So if they play well and lose, there's going to be frustration and angst, but not as much as there will be at Georgia because in Georgia, it is about, all right, look, we, we, we own Florida. We've come close to Alabama this year. It wasn't so close against Alabama. If they lose to Florida, there's a lot of people that are getting more and more frustrated with Kirby and understanding that the program is in good shape, but they're frustrated with Kirby's inability to maybe take that step or make those moves to take the program to the different level. Well, now a loss against Florida, the narrative would no longer be, hey, not only will we're not taking that next step, but we're not even beating the team that we've own the past few years. That's how they look at it. So I think that's a big picture. I don't know if you, that's how I see it going into the game. And that doesn't have anything to do. We'll get into the minutia of the game, but that's the big picture of how the fan bases will look at it. And I'm, I'm on record. I think Kirby's done a fantastic job. I think the, the program is in better shape than when Mark Rick had it. Cause people will look at the record. And this is, again, I don't look at the results. I look at the process. With Mark, it was, boy, spike up, boy, spike down, boy, spike up. There was way too much. I think there's plenty of consistency at Georgia. So in analyzing programs, which is a lot of what I do in my consulting work, is, look, I think Georgia's really, really good. But they're also deficient in some areas. But it's a lot easier, Neil, to take something that's really good and fix it. You got a really good car, but it, it, it's got a – you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Fix it, you know, the part that's bad, you know, and, and you're off and running. You got yourself a great vehicle. I, I think that's what Georgia is. I think they're, they're a lot closer than people think. But if they don't fix what ails them, then the result – will be the narrative. He's no better than Mark Rick. His record won't be. I, I get that. But the reality is it's a lot more fixable than trying to fix the Mark Rick situation. This is fixable. Is Kirby, does he recognize it? How can he fix it? Uh, I think there's some issues. I think they've got to figure out how they're going to go forward with their offense. But Munkin was a sign that they were trying to make a decision to go forward with this. And then obviously the quarterback that was supposed to be the quarterback left. And so now they're in a, in a spot, but I, that's a big picture view of it. And then we got some players missing defensively for Florida, perhaps four key guys down um, two guys on the front, two guys on the back end. Georgia's got a couple of guys. So, um, and I will get into what I think the, 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 uh, the matchup where the matchup is going to be one, but I, I, I'm just, uh, I'm as excited about this game as I have been for a while because I didn't see this as a real competitive game the past couple of years going into it. I thought Georgia was quite a bit better. Yeah, I did too. And I still think Georgia's a better roster than than Florida today. I do think, as you mentioned, Georgia comes into this game sort of wounded. They've had they've had some injuries. They're not getting great quarterback play. In this league, if you don't have great quarterback play, that obviously brings you down enough where someone can get you. And from a big-picture standpoint, I think this is a real moment of opportunity for Dan Mullen in Florida. Um, I don't think there's another loss on their regular season schedule if they if they beat Georgia. I think it gets them to Atlanta, where they'll get skull-drugged by Alabama. But regardless, it gets them over Georgia, at least temporarily, 
and may change the calculus from a recruiting standpoint a little bit. It may give them a little bit of momentum. It may allow them to, as weird as this sounds, by beating them once, allow them to close the gap some. Beating them in one game from a big picture standpoint doesn't mean you've passed them. There's too many, too many, too much evidence of that not happening. But it does allow Florida to say, we're not going to be a consistent second fiddle. We're right here, especially if you look at the East as an entire landscape, right? I mean, we've started the last couple of years talking about Tennessee is going to close the gap and make this a three-team race. And it's very clear that at least right now, Tennessee's not close to that. Maybe they'll get there, but right now they're nowhere close to that. South Carolina is an average program. Missouri is is well, it's too early to judge what's going to happen with Drinkwitz, but it's still a ways off, even if that's going to happen. Stoops has done a nice job at Kentucky, but it's clear that that program, at least the way it's shaped today, is not capable of of getting to that place. And then Vanderbilt's lost. I mean, whatever. So you you've got this Florida Georgia dynamic, which is kind of the same as it's always been. And there was a perception going into the past couple of years because it was accurate that Georgia was about to become this elite national power that was going to put Florida perpetually in the back seat. And I think Florida's got an opportunity to stop that wave right now, if you will. You know, I wonder, as you're saying that, I want to flip it to Georgia, and something has come to me, and I really wasn't thinking this way, but I have found this the case with dealing with coaches in the past. I wonder, I just wonder, if Georgia loses this game, if it propels Kirby into the realization of some systemic changes he needs to make with his offense. Like what? Whereas, well, I mean, he's got to take a page from what Alabama did in that we've, you know, they are, they are capable. I mean, look, they have recruited elite quarterbacks. They can't keep them because they have a lot of them, and I think a lot of them feel, including Jamie Newman, that, you know what, playing in this offense is not going to help my future, which I would debate that in a different time and place. But but I think that, you know, sometimes when you have success, Neil, you feel like, you know what, we're getting – in other words, if they beat Florida again, handle it, it kind of – buttresses up their theory that we're doing it exactly like we need to and let's go make another run at Bama and whereas if they lose this game and take that step back maybe it's a announcement that that gets clear to the head coach that we've got to make this concerted effort that yes we want to be really good defensively we want to be a good running team but we've got to be able to be more proficient in the passing game and if we don't Look, we've taken a step back. I mean, it, look, it, it's not – this is not rock bottom, but, you know, sometimes when you're knocked down a peg, you realize it's not quite there. I have been there on staffs, and I have worked with staffs that it takes that because, you know, the whole theory of, well – and, I mean, I, I can go into Phil Fomer. You know, Phil used to always say, well, we won an awful lot of games over here doing it that way. And, you know, I mean, you get a lot of that. Sure, of course. And 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 Kirby is a little bit more more along the lines, and, and Jeremy Pruitt is, by the way, too, of the way they did it at Alabama before Nick changed. But Nick is always, and this is what he learned mostly from Belichick, because I know this from being in there firsthand, is always trying to look at, the new way looking at rules and the new ways and that people think Saban is the stubborn guy. Well, he's stubborn maybe with media and things. He is the most forward thinking. He's there's proof. Yeah, of that, Chris. He, has, he has those yellow legal pads and he writes things about that. He likes what other people are doing. I, you know, I deal with them a lot. Well, who's doing this? Who's doing, it? he works his butt off in getting his staff and his group of analysts to do things differently. So I, Kirby needs a little bit more of that. And by the way, Jeremy does as well. You've got to be able to have success offensively. Uh, and you can do it without sacrificing what your style and your defense to some degree. But I just wonder if a loss here in a weird way might, be to the betterment of Georgia down the road, whereas a win might delay the ultimate decisions of making Kirby realize what he needs to do. I don't know that. I just, it's a rhetorical question. It's a great point, though, because if you think about Alabama under Saban, when he got there in 2007, I guess, 
They got rolling pretty quick. They did it, this grind it out on offense. Don't lose it on offense. Suffocate you on defense. Have enough athletes to make big plays, punish you. They, you know, wear you down, destroy you in the fourth quarter. That was sort of their style. And it worked. It worked a lot. And then as teams began to close the gap on them, to Saban's credit, he looked out and said, I got to do something. Got to do something different. I'm about to get caught. And so he goes out and does something that I think from a personality standpoint, he never would have done. He never no. hired Lane Kiffin. Never. He, he knew when he brought Lane Kiffin to his staff that he was changing the personality dynamic on his staff. He knew that there was going to be not conflict, because I don't think that's fair to Kiffin, but he knew that Kiffin was a little bit of a free spirit who did not necessarily fit the mold of the traditional Saban assistant, you know, Kirby, Pruitt, Muschamp, Jimbo Fisher, the guys that kind of come off that tree a little bit. Lane Kiffin, I'm covering him right now, is not like those guys. He's different. But he brought him in, and then he, to his credit, you see all these pictures from back in those days with Saban chewing Kiffin's ass, right? Mm-hmm. But what you also see, if you get past that, because that's window dressing, you also see that the offense fundamentally changed. Well, yeah, and because he, I can tell you, I mean, dealing with him, he wanted to change. What made it change was the rules. You know, here's the thing, and I don't know how many people study this or, or notice this a lot, but the rules, the way it was kind of written in football, the the RPOs, the biggest thing with that is that it it's, it's legalized something that's been illegal in football for a while. It's the downfield block because basically you can't get downfield. Well, you, you, if it's not a run or a pass and it becomes a pass, well, a run becomes a pass. It's Is it a run? Is it a pass? I mean, if you're not going to call that, you better adjust it. You see that marginalized in the NFL. You don't, it's not allowable the same way as it is in college. So when he said, and Nick said, look, this is not the way, is this the way we want football to be? That was his quote. Well, when the answer was, we're not changing it, he said, okay, I'm going to go and get me some of that too. And he went in with that idea and he went in and did it. And probably the best thing that Lane Kiffin ever did was he was the one that said, we really need to bring in Sark. And when they brought in Sark after the whole, you know, fiasco and his and Sark had some problems, you know, uh, off the field and the USC situation. But then because Sark is Kiffin without the, you know, the personality, you know, but but with in the past and I, I, I don't know now it seems like he's OK, you know, but with, with some of the the drinking issues that were very well known, you know, no secret, but. But, sure. you know, so that and they they'll recruit very well. And people say, oh, they got all the talent. Anybody can call that BS. They are very well coached and very well talented. So, yeah. So I think there is no reason why Georgia can't be that. And if they don't. Then I think the potential problem could be for them if they don't get better, you either get better or you get worse than if Florida continues to recruit better and becomes back to their defensive ways and has their talent, yeah, they, they could emerge as a better program than Georgia, which they are not right now. They could be a better team this year, but they could end up being a better program than Georgia, and Georgia's got to figure that out right now and and stay up with the times. Let me ask you this about Sarkeesian, because you're right. He's, he stepped in post-Kiffin at Alabama. and <clears throat> And remember, with Kiffin, yeah, he was with Kiffin. Yeah, it, 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 it yeah. came together. He was yeah. the guy that was there, and you know when Lane went it took the Florida Atlantic job. So here he is, and he's done a phenomenal job at Alabama with with that offense. Because frankly, right now, when you think about Alabama football today, isn't it funny? You don't think defense first. You think that dynamic offense. I mean, he's got here. You have Mac Jones, who now look. Mac Jones was a highly recruited kid who could have gone to a lot of different places and been the starter ages ago. To his credit, he wanted to go to Alabama. He waited his turn uh, for Tua, and uh, it's his offense. And today, I think if you did the Heisman vote today, and I realize that they were not doing the vote today, but if you did the vote today, I think he'd win. And so, you know, he's having that kind of year. Whether he wins the Heisman or not, he's having a Heisman kind of season. And 
a lot of that credit has to go to, to Sarkeesian, what he's done with Mac Jones, what he's been able to do with keeping Najee Harris involved. Um, Devonta Smith is having a Heisman kind of a season as a wide receiver. They've been very good up front. They spread the ball around. They're very difficult to defend. No one stops them, et cetera. Has Sarkeesian put himself in a place where he should be the, the guy that gets that next big shot at a power five job. We don't ever talk about him. We talk about Napier and we talk about, you know, um, uh, Luke fickle and, and deservedly so, but has Sarkeesian put himself in the spot where it's it, his turn? Yeah, he is. I mean, um, you know, Colorado had a late jump on their coaching hire and, and they were very interested in talking with him. He wasn't. And I, I think it had to do with the, job itself but also the timing was bad if you remember mel left colorado really late you know to go to michigan state because d'antonio you know retired backed out of that late but there were a couple of folks that were interested in sark sark has been very selective and you know he's not going to do what lane did he's not going to go to fau he's he's gonna go and, and you said you know power five uh the right power five job i don't i don't know that he would go and I'm not saying there's going to be an opening. I'm not, but, and I don't want to take, I don't think he'd go to Mississippi state. I don't think he'd go to, I think he would look for the right type of job. And for him, it, it might, it, it might easily be the right type of West coast job that comes open too. you know, uh, whatever the job is that, that, that he'd be comfortable with, he's going to be selective, but yes. And there is some interest level because I, you know, look, call it what you want. Um, being around Nick has helped a whole lot, and it's why a lot of guys want to go, you know, work in there. I mean, there are a lot of guys that have benefited from learning, and and one of them, one of them's doing a really good job out at Oregon. May end up being the the favorite to to be the next head coach at Alabama when Nick goes. I mean, depending on how it goes, but Mario Cristobal is is a guy that learned a lot. And by the way, Kyle Flood is another guy that deserves a lot of credit on that offense because what a really good job he's done with that offensive line and working with with Sark. But yes, I think Sark is definitely a shortlist candidate for a lot of folks. The reason why he hasn't been mentioned publicly is he really hasn't. He's shown no interest even when his name – I hear his name a little bit in some circles, but it, it's quickly, you know, pushed aside due to his lack of interest. Interesting. All right, let's talk. Uh, let's talk the the matchup. Florida, yes, Florida, the matchup. Florida, Georgia. The one that sticks out to me. This is well, it's both, and it's obvious, but they're they're different things. Take me through if you're Florida defensively, what you want to do against the Georgia offense with uh, Bennett at quarterback. You have to stop the run. So this this is a way to talk that side of the ball. I mean, in the end of the day, Georgia is still about running the football. Their ability to throw it will be predicated on their ability to run it and force an eighth defender and maybe even eight and a half defenders in the box. Georgia can throw the football then if they can if they can do that. If they can't, they're in trouble. So what Florida wants to do, they obviously want to force the ball outside the numbers in the pass game, but they have to defend the run. Now, how you do that? Well, there's some things you can employ with some run blitzes. You take chances, but then you can get gashed. I don't think they're they're all that concerned about that. I think they feel like they can score points. So defensively, I think they're going to take some chances. Um, they did look better, got off blocks better uh, in the Missouri game. That's important to note because they had some extra time to work um, with the time off. But the whole key is if you can't stop Georgia's run, it just it's not going to happen for you. So can you create some negative plays on early downs? Can you got to set the edge in the run game and you got to defend the run? Even if you got to defend it with numbers, you got to stop it. If you can do that fourth, third, and longs, you want to take away the easy throws. You want to make Stetson Bennett throw it outside the numbers. And you want to get defenders in his face. So even when you're rushing the passer, get your hands up because he has a hard time seeing and make it more difficult by getting your hands up. And that can force some picks. So now the one way you can slow down this Florida defense is get them in third and longs where they can absolutely force some turnovers. That's that's the real key. Uh, but you got to stop the run because if you can't, 
then everything, and that's the real key when those two units are on the field, is if Georgia can defend, can run the football and they can force extra defenders in the box, then they're able to throw the football over the middle. You've, you've moved the safeties. You've got opportunities to make plays. Then that's where Georgia can have success throwing it. But what you want to do is create negative plays defensively, stop the run, and then make Georgia play from behind. That's what Alabama did. Once Georgia got behind, it was over because then Georgia had to reduce the play action, reduce the effectiveness of the run game, which is their strength, and had to be more pass first. Why? Because they were behind and they had to chase points. Florida has to force Georgia to chase points. If you can do that, big advantage Florida. If Georgia can control that and force Georgia to play numbers in the box, advantage Georgia. That's where the game is going to be won on that side of the ball, no doubt in my mind. Kyle Trask has played really well this season. This is an yes. opportunity for him to to really bolster his stock, not only as a, as a college quarterback, but as a future NFL quarterback. He's going to go against a – Probably the best defense that he's seen this year. A&M might disagree, but I, I think this is the best one that, that he's faced this season. It's banged up, though. They have some personnel issues. This is an opportunity for Florida, right? I mean, they, they can sort of take advantage of some weaknesses here that, that are suddenly popping up on, on Georgia's defense and, and do exactly what you just said, which is force Georgia into a catch-up game. Yeah, Rochester's out. Um, Richard LeCount's out in the back end. The real key for Georgia is you can't allow the explosive plays over the top. You know, you got to force Florida to go, you know, work it underneath, rally to the ball, try to force the ball loose, force them to make a mistake, get the ball back, and then control it. That, that's the key. If, if Florida can get early points, and South Florida has to win it on this side of the ball when these two units are on, is Florida feels like they can – score that can score in most people they're capable of scoring against georgia they're going to have to work the tempo to their favor they're going to have to get out to an early lead get out to a lead then all of a sudden that's when florida can have a big advantage if there is a decisive win meaning points wise it's more likely to be florida decisively beating georgia because if that were to happen that means that florida got some early points and it takes georgia out of the running game whereas georgia is more likely to pounce on Florida, but the score be a little bit more, you know, reasonable. It's just a different style. Styles make fights. Florida needs to get some explosive. Play. Florida does not stay committed to the run game. I think working Tony, who had a great game last week, is going to be pivotal. I think you've got to watch where he is lined up if you're Georgia. You've got to make sure – I mean, where's Waldo? I mean, if he's lined up and you got to make sure that he doesn't hurt you out of the backfield wide, Georgia's really good defensively. They're fundamentally sound. They play well. They, they, they're really good gap control. But if you can make some plays vertically, the tight end eats you up down the field a little bit and you get down, hold on, Georgia, th then it becomes very difficult. So I, I think it's about preventing the big play and defending the run with seven. So I expect a lot of two deep, some two deep man under, maybe some cover three. Do not allow the deep ball to beat you if you're Georgia. That, that's going to be their undoing because then they're offensively, they get out of sorts and they can't do what they like to do. Give me your, give me your pick on this one. What do you think happens? You know, um, I have gone back and forth and forth and back, and I really do think it comes down to the explosive plays. Uh, that's going to be pivotal. I think um, the key is going to be – take note of this stat. Okay. Rushing attempts, pass completions. Team that has the most in this game is going to win there. And, and what it means is really with – and it could be 12 – pass completions and, you know, 45 rushing attempts by Georgia. If, if that's the case, then Georgia is going, going to be able to control this game. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I have gone back and forth, and I don't feel really strongly about it. I do think Georgia's physicality could be the difference. I'm going to go with Georgia, but I'm not real confident about it. I, I, I would not surprise me at all. I think this could be a close game either way 
are a decisive win by Florida. And what I mean by that is explosive points that could be maybe not quite Alabama-like, but uh, I, I think it's a close one. Maybe Georgia wins a close one, but I don't know. I would not. I would not be. I would tread lightly, folks, on this one. Yeah. This is different than the other Georgia Florida games as I see it. You know, it's interesting. A lot of times, betting lines move a lot during the course of a week. This one has not. It opened at uh, Florida. It opened at, at four and a half. It dropped pretty quickly to two and a half, and it is now across the board Florida plus three and a half. So Georgia three and a half point favorite in this game that is on a, quote, neutral, end quote, field. I'm like you. I've gone back and forth. I, I never got a good feel for it. I picked Florida just because there's something in my gut that tells me this is Florida's time, and I don't know what that's based on. I certainly don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Just something about the way it feels. Mm-hmm. Who knows? That could end up. It does feel yeah. different than the games of the past because this Florida offense is for real, and – you would think that that could be the difference and will be the difference in the game if Florida is able to pull it out. I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I see that. Absolutely. Um, all right. So let's move to some of the other games. We, we, the, the One game is terrific. The other game, which basically goes up against it in a time slot. Whew, I mean, if you've, got <laughs> a kid, if you've got a kid who plays at Vanderbilt or a kid who plays at Mississippi State, I, I understand why you would watch. Otherwise, whew, boy, Vanderbilt at Mississippi State. I'm going to see where that line is right now. I was looking for it a moment ago. Found is it. it is it still like 19-ish and a half-ish? Yeah, it's 19. Uh, it, Vanderbilt, a 19-point underdog at Mississippi State. This game's at 3 p.m. Central on SEC Network. About the only thing I'll say about this game that has any significance at all is this is a game that if Mike Leach doesn't win it, as crazy as that sounds, I know it's year one. If he doesn't win it, given all of the internal stuff that's happened inside that program, I think there would be a little, not not hot seat heat, but heat. I think. Oh, you, it's going to be. I mean, you lose to Vanderbilt after the performance they've put together. What there will be is a collective. We bleeped this up big time. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, you know, it's like we can't get out of this mess this year, but we bleep this up. And this is really, this is a disaster. You know, we're, we're in the middle of the storm now. That's, that's other, you're right. Now, this is, this is, and for that reason, and mainly due to the fact that Vanderbilt's so bad, I would say that, Neil, that winning and winning decisively, is probably, you know, recommended for Mississippi State, Mike Leach. It really is. I think so, too. I think a, a, a loss or a, even a narrow win over Mississippi State is going to – because, listen, there's a handful of recruits that they've got in-state kids who are wavering a little bit right now, specifically to Ole Miss, that I think Mississippi State can still hang on to them. But there's a – whether it's right or not, you and I have talked about this some. I'm a big believer in perception becomes reality. If the perception is something, it might as well be reality over a certain period of time. And there's a perception out there that Kiffin has this fun program moving forward, up. May, may not show in the WL column, but that's the perception is that that's a program that's on the rise. Okay, Not saying it's true, not saying it's not. I'm saying that's the perception, especially among kids. The same kids are beginning to sort of discuss a perception that Mississippi State is a stagnant program that may have made a hire that didn't fit and it's not going to work and players are unhappy and Kylan Hill opts out and other guys leave and that it's sliding. Is that true? I don't know. Maybe, may not be. I don't know. It's too early, in my opinion, to say on either way. But if the perception stays and kicks in, that perception can become reality fast. And kids make decisions based off that perception. Am I making any sense? Absolutely. And I'm all of a sudden, the perception not only became the reality, but the reality became the reality. It became a real thing when you suddenly lose three, four, five recruits in one cycle to a rival because of the perception inside of a state 
And Kiffin's not making recruiting Mississippi a great big deal. It's not part of his thing. But he's not going to turn down three or four four-star players mm-hmm. who are committed to Mississippi State who suddenly flip to Ole Miss. He's going to take those guys. And if that happens, it starts to fuel it with future classes. And before you know it, if you're Mississippi State, you have a problem on your hands. That's why I think this game does have some degree of importance. Because if they lose to Mississippi to Vanderbilt, I'm not sure there's another W on the schedule. Now, I was about to say they're going to have to pull an upset to get three wins this year. I mean, they're going to have to beat Auburn, and I, you know, I, it, it, you never. God bless Auburn. You never know that could just, you know, Ole Miss, you know, Missouri. I mean, it's it's doable, but very, very, very unlikely. And so we're looking at two wins because I do think they'll beat Vanderbilt. But if they don't, one win, man, that would just be look. I, and listen, I I think Mike will be able to. Recruit quarterbacks. I think you'll be able to get receivers. You'll be able to sell that. The rest of it, Mike's not a great recruiter. Uh, I'm being kind. He's not good at all. And I I think long range, there are going to be some issues. But I think, you know, look, they'll be able to put up and sell that. We'll be able to put up yards and points because he'll be able to do that. But, you know, wins in the expectation level. um, Again, I, I, I feel like I know Mike better than most. A lot of people think they know Mike. I know Mike really well. I, I just um, listen. I, I, I wish both the best, and I hope it works out. But I've never felt good about this hire, and um, I just hope I'm wrong because I don't like when things go bad for people. But I just uh, I'm uncomfortable. I do think they win though. Here, yeah, I, I just don't. I just don't. I don't see anything with Vanderbilt that just they are just getting worse. If that's even possible. Oh, it's possible. Ole Miss could have hung 80 on them on Saturday. Yeah. You know, and this is – it's a good Ole Miss team. It's a really good offensive team, but that was a that was a, a mauling, kind of mauling that you just – I don't know. If, if, if I'm a – if I'm Vanderbilt, I'm, I'm having to have to sit down soon. This is bigger than Derek Mason. This is – this is oh, yeah. cultural. This is – you've got to sit down and decide, does this matter to you? Well, and you know, the people that say, well, Derek Mason's not, well, that's why Derek Mason's there. It's why you, and with all due respect to Derek, that's why you had to go get a coordinator at a highly prestigious academic school to come in and be willing to, cause Derek wasn't going to get another job. That's the whole point. Right. It's like, you know, people would say, you know, people y'all always just tell me, well, Parcells wouldn't win there. Uh, in Cincinnati, he wouldn't go to Cincinnati because that's not, you know, they, they don't do things the way he knows they need to get done to win. Right. So no, Saban would not win at Vanderbilt. He wouldn't go there. He would have never have. So the whole point is you're right to attract somebody. You've got to create a culture. And I don't, I don't, I don't believe there's any interest in that at all at Vanderbilt. And they just give lip service to a whole lot and don't really do anything. So no, it's a problem. And yeah, do do I think they need a better coach? Yes, that's that's on the list of things that they need to get better at. And but I wouldn't waste another hire unless I was going to do it right. <laughs> and I wouldn't recommend anybody that I have a relationship with to go there unless I had a feeling that. You know, they were on the way to getting it right. And and it went, oh, James Franklin did a great job. James Franklin did something you have to do. You have to go out on campus, sell the program like a salesman. And yet, you know, he couldn't wait to get out of there as well because it was on borrowed time. And so anyway, yeah, that's a that's a mess. And I I just, you know, it's enough. We'll talk about it. We got more stuff to get to, but maybe another another day, plant the seed. Um, Ross Dellinger of, the, of uh, Sports Illustrated did a really good story this week on Hugh Freeze, the former Ole Miss coach who's now at uh, Liberty, doing a great job at Liberty. The, the product that they have on the field is excellent. Got Virginia Tech this week, folks. Look out for that. Interesting. Interesting. Game. And I don't know whether Hugh would take Vanderbilt if it were offered to him. I don't oh. know if he would leave li- Liberty for Vanderbilt. I do sometimes wonder if it might take somebody. And, and Hugh no- knows how to get out and sell. I do wonder if maybe that might be the kind of person you go after. Oh you know? boy. I don't, I don't know what do. I don't think so, Neil. I, I mean the the inability to recruit the type of players that he'd want to recruit, not be able to get those. I I I think that would be a 
you know, would be a disaster move for him. I I think he's getting, I think he's on pace to get a good job somewhere. It may not be this year, but I would not. He's got a good gig where he is. Yeah, I know, but I'm, I mean, that's what I'm saying. He, he, my point is, is he, he has the ability to be patient. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, just saying he can be a little patient, but they'll be better. I mean, there's a lot. And I know Southern going the side that that is not one you want to take there, and I don't. That is not a fit, and I don't. I'm going to tell you something. I don't even think Vanderbilt will be interested. They're they're that type of snooty type of people. No, I I I just uh, I don't like that fit at all. I mean, it's just one of those boy. I just don't see him and her fitting. <laughs> I don't see that personally. But anyway. Uh, knowing Hugh and knowing Vanderbilt situation, I see that it, I, I don't see either one being interested. But yeah, who knows? You, you never know. A couple more games to get to first. Which, yeah, but once they were brought to you by Jupiter Security Systems, based in Madison, Mississippi. Jupiter Security Systems provides your business with the help desk. It allows you to get software at a much cheaper price than you would pay going directly to Microsoft or the different cybersecurity services. They also can set up remote monitoring on a computer regardless of the location. This has been a game saver for me. I'm able to get in touch with Eric at Jupiter. He can get into my computer. I'm I'm a guy that's having to learn a lot of new software, a lot of new systems, and sometimes those systems can be a little persnickety. You can do something a little wrong. You can freeze it. You can lose something. You can't find it. I'm able to, Jupiter's able to get on my computer, fix it, sign out, all good. They're not monitoring what I'm doing. They're not looking at what sites I've been to. They're not reading my emails, but they're able to get in and fix something. And I can sit here and watch them do it, which is a really cool thing. It's been a game changer for me from a technological standpoint with some of the uh, live streaming we're doing. Sometimes I'm on uh, Twitch, sometimes I'm on YouTube, sometimes I'm Facebook audio, sometimes I'm doing Skype, I'm doing all sorts of things, I'm trying to interface. They've been a big help for me. They can be a big help for you too. Get in touch with them at 601-519-9583 or email info, I-N-F-O at jupitersecurity.net or visit jupitersecurity.net. We also brought to you by Blue Sky. Blue Sky believes in being fast, fresh, and friendly. Through the thoughtful layout and cleanliness of their stores, Blue Sky hopes to provide customers with a fast and easy buying experience from services to products. Keep everything fresh. They provide the freshest flavors of the brand name products and the best services available. They bring in some of the newest products on the market to their stores to provide an even better customer experience. A smile can say it all. And at Blue Sky, they want their customers to know that they care about them and their shopping experience. So they're always striving to improve their efforts to accomplish exactly that. So check out Blue Sky today at any one of their 48 store locations across the Southeast. All right, uh, what do we got? We got uh, Texas A&M at South Carolina. That's a 6 p.m. game, Central, 7 Eastern on uh, on ESPN. You know, A&M's kind of rolling, and the path is there, whether whether you think it's legitimate or not. The path is there for them to get that number four spot in the college football playoff. I'm not saying they're going to do it, but the path is there for them, and they can motivate themselves with that because it's it's realistic, certainly possible. What does South Carolina have to do, Chris, to derail that? Well, they're going to have – I mean, they've got to get more uh, out of the passing game. It's the one thing when I watch them, and I know Mike Bobo's really tried to work hard at that. They've got a good runner in Harris. They've got to have more offensive balance. Uh, to, to pull an upset like this, and we've seen them do this, you know, to, to Georgia last year, but – you know, you, they've got to get a little more consistency out of the passing game. That one guy that you got to worry about defending. And Shai's great, but you got to have some other answers. And I think that opens up the run game that allows you to make some plays. Uh, this AM teams is playing solid. Um, now, South Carolina's had a week to get a little bit healthy and prepare. That's, that's big. Um, and, and I do think they can have some success throwing the football. One thing that AM has struggled a little bit is defending good passing teams. South Carolina is not good, but if they have a good week of preparation, um, this game could be a little bit closer. It could be a little bit dicey for AM. Again, AM looks better, is better, 
but it does not matter, Neil, if you're better. It matters if you play better, right? So, I mean, if they do it this week, they handle business. This A&M team looks really, really solid. By the way, our friend Patrick, and we appreciate you joining us in the chat room at Twitch. Patrick says, who is going to replace Will Muschamp at South Carolina? Patrick, uh, Patrick Kelly, we appreciate you joining us. Uh, I don't, I'm not, I wouldn't be so sure that they're going to replace Will Muschamp this year because of finances. Let's see how this season ends. If it goes disastrous, they're going to have to make some difficult financial decisions. Um, I think it'd have to go really bad, though. To to answer your question, if and when that job comes open, and let's just say it's this year, I do think Billy Napier would be very interested in it. Um, he's got a lot of background at South Carolina from his time at Clemson. Um, is got kind of an eye. That's the type of job that would really interest him now, whether it's the right fit and all that. But I wouldn't be so sure that that's going to be open. There was a rumor, and I'll stress rumor, fairly well sourced, but rumor nonetheless. Last year, when all the stuff about Billy Napier and Mississippi State was just burning the 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 mm-hmm. mill, there was always this voice that I heard that told me, "Hey, I don't think he wants Mississippi State. I think he wants to wait on South Carolina." Is that true? Is that is that too simplified? Probably. Is there probably a, a, a grain of truth in there somewhere? Certainly something to watch for, like you said. And Billy Napier, a lot like Hugh Freeze, is in a great situation where he is at Louisiana Lafayette. Got a solid roster. It's a good program. They're committed. They're not going to fall off the cliff. He can be patient. He can wait another 12 months to take a gig. He doesn't have to go desperately looking for a job right now. He can, he can, he can wait it out. He's all yeah. he's good in Lafayette for for another year. Here's the thing about South Carolina before we get into Tennessee Arkansas game is South Carolina is I don't I don't know how to classify maybe the most unique job in the SEC in this regard. It has unbelievable support, fan base, atmosphere, a lot of things. And it, I mean, I think all you need to do is look at, you know, Lou Holtz and Steve Spurrier. And I granted that it was near nice golf courses. And that was a big part of those two guys wanting to take it. But, but it's, it's a really good job with not the hyper pressure that you see other places, meaning they get frustrated. They want to make a change. They don't think Will's getting it done. But the reality is if you, if you do a nice job there, um, I think there's some level of understanding that doesn't exist at other places that, you know, you're probably not going to win the East. Now, no, some fans say, well, when are we going to win? Well, you don't. I mean, South Carolina's won one conference title, and that's 1969 in the ACC. Paul Dietzel. Okay. It just doesn't happen at South Carolina. And, you know, it's not Florida. It's not Georgia. And, you know, even Tennessee. But but South Carolina is one of those gigs where you can make good money it's a great place. It's a lot of support, and yet there's not the hyper expectation. So I think it's a very attractive job, and that's why it attracted guys like Steve Spurrier and Lou Holtz. A lot of people were, you know, I me mean, really. I mean, it's a really, really good job that you'd be surprised who would be interested in it because of its uniqueness. So uh, I'm sure they'll have opportunities to, you know, even look at some other people, you might be surprised who might be interested in that job is what I'm saying, when and if it comes open. By the way, uh, the line on that game is about 10 right now. Opened at 8. It's moved to 10 across the board. Texas A&M at 10. That might be a little closer than that. Might be a little closer, but I do like A&M there. Well, folks in Vegas, they, they know what they're doing, Chris. All right, the last one, speaking of lines, uh, when we, you and I talked on – Tuesday, Tennessee was a one-point favorite over Arkansas. As we talk here on Friday morning, Tennessee is a two-point favorite over Arkansas across the board. The Vols and the Hogs, 6.30 in uh, Fayetteville. Cannot get a ticket. I know plenty of people who are trying to get tickets to that game. It is impossible. They are really excited in Fayetteville about the Hogs, about uh, everything that Sam Pittman's doing there. Will they leave the stadium excited on Saturday night, Chris? You know, 
from a football standpoint, I'm looking at Tennessee and I'm figuring out how they get it done. They offensively don't have a lot of answers. Quarterback play is going to have to be unusually better than it has been. I mean, it's going to have to be an unusually good game. Um, and I don't know if Garantano's capable of doing it or, I mean, he's capable, but not, not, not consistently. And I don't know if the running game is good enough to kind of bail them out of the situation. So I, I do have some real concerns there. I got to tell you though, this is, we talk about important games and we talked about the, the big picture with Florida, Georgia and all that kind of stuff. This is yep. huge from a optic standpoint for Jeremy Pruitt. Um, there's frustration level again, you go on the road and lose to a first year coach and it's just a bad look. It really is a bad look for him. And I think as you try to build something, it just would be a really, really difficult loss. And they've got AM, got Auburn, they've got Florida left. This is this is another place where it starts to look really bad on a third year coach. Just this is one of those gut feelings. Like you said, you got I just have a feeling kind of a in the NFL, a team that's in a desperation mode, I usually tend to think they usually show up. It's not the same in college, but this is one of them. I just feel like Tennessee's got to win this game. And I know Arkansas hasn't beaten a good team yet this year, but Tennessee's not classified as a really good team. This is a game that I can absolutely, from a football standpoint, makes all the sense in the world to say Arkansas is going to win this game. Strategically breaking it down, I think they've got some advantages. I really do. Just something in a desperation mode for Tennessee says, They'll find a way to win it, and I, I don't know. I am really, really intrigued by this game just to be able to watch it for the reasons that we just mentioned about how important it is. It's going up against Clemson-Notre Dame time slot-wise, but it'll be uh, – I know this. It's going to be on uh, – it's going to be on, on monitor two for me. <laughs> yeah. Monitor one is going to be on Clemson-Notre Dame. Yeah, what do me, you, yeah. What do you, yeah. What do you think about that game? Uh, I still like Clemson. I think that that Notre Dame, I still worry about their explosiveness on offense and they're going to have enough ability to rush the passer. I think Clemson wins it, but it's a lot more intriguing game and a lot better chance for Notre Dame, with obviously, without Trevor Lawrence. Any other games stick out over the got about two, three minutes left? Uh, yeah, you know, listen, um, Friday night here, if you're catching this show on Friday and and you, you, you know, it hadn't bypassed you, Check out BYU Boise on the road Friday night. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I do think BYU is better, but it's a challenge that they uh, they don't normally get. Um, you know, I, I think that's that's you know to me really intriguing. Michigan um, Indiana is a good game. Michigan Indiana is another one that's really intriguing to me because I think it's a it's a desperation game for Michigan. I kind of expect them to respond, but. Man, I you know I just did not. I could have done four hours and not give you a scenario where Michigan State was going to beat Michigan last week, and it did happen. So uh, that's going to be real interesting to see how uh, how that plays out. And then I'm very curious to see what the aforementioned Hugh Freeze does on the road against Virginia Tech. That's going to be 11 a.m. on the ACC network. Uh, that's going to be real interesting. So the Saturday early time slot: Michigan, Indiana, uh, Nebraska, Northwestern. Uh, West Virginia, Texas, Arizona State, USC. Yes, they're playing really early breakfast, breakfast in in, uh, in LA, and then uh, Liberty, Virginia Tech's kind of interesting. So yeah, some interesting games there. I think Cincinnati is going to roll again, and I'm curious to see which, um, at least initially, how some of the Pac-12 teams look, the ones that can play and will play. We talked last week about the Saints and Bears. That game kind of lived up to the billing. It was a hell of a game. Yeah, it, it really was. And, you know, I'm just the thing that concerns me about the Bears is, you know, when they need to, they, you're going to have to have some offense. And, you know, it's just the inability to do it in a game like that is pivotal. And, you know, Nick Foles, we've seen him do it in the past. And in a one game scenario, I could see it happen in the playoffs but you're not going to see it sustainable, and that's going to be their undoing. And it's just, in the end, the defense played well enough to win, gave it every chance, just couldn't do it. They're really deficient in there. The Bears have made two quarterback mistakes. They made the Trubisky mistake in the draft, and then they doubled down and made the Foles mistake instead of 
letting maybe even letting Trubisky have this one last season and then get into the draft or whatever the case may be. But they've they've created an issue for themselves. Uh, I'm looking just to see if there's anything that catches the eye. Carolina's at Kansas City. Uh, the Bears are at Tennessee. Seattle Buffalo is an interesting game. The uh, Seahawks are well, three. And, and the game of the week, don't forget the game of the week is Sunday night. Got the Saints and Bucks. Oh, yeah. That's basically going to be for the NFC. Well, it's still early, but if the Saints are able to win on the road, that's two games, a sweep of the Bucks. And the Bucks did not look very good against the Giants on Monday night, but they have played better than the Saints. They look a little better overall on film. So be interesting to see, you know. Uh, and I am curious with that Bears-Titans game because both teams coming off a loss really need it. That kind of is the do factor. And, uh, boy, I'm, I'm worried Buffalo just – they have not looked good after starting off 4-0. and So, yeah, no, it's it's going to be uh, it's going to be a fun week as we're getting into week nine of the NFL. Week nine in the NFL, the Saints, a four-and-a-half-point dog, by the way, at Tampa on uh, on Sunday night. We'll come back. On Tuesday, we'll recap Georgia, Florida, and the rest of the SEC slate and get you ready for another week in the SEC here on SEC Football and Beyond. For Chris Landry, I'm Neil McCready. Have a great weekend, and we will talk to you on Tuesday.